0: Welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy: Russian Literature for the Inebriated. I'm Matt Maximilian Banks Garasmovich, and I'm Cameron Lalana. This week, I'm not starting a hydroponic garden yet, but we're getting there. Ooh, exciting!
1: This is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we're going to be reading the first half of "We" by Yevgeny Zamyatin. Uh, but before that cameron we got a little bit of podcast updates yeah exciting Uh, stuff yeah it is exciting stuff if you've been craving more of that spicy spicy content from us you can follow along with our podcast facebook we're on facebook now facebook.com slash tipsy tolstoy and we're even on twitter at tipsy tolstoy so come come hang out come talk to us
0: come chat on one of our many platforms many many We're everywhere.
1: You can't get away from
0: us. (laughs) (laughs) We're all encompassing. Yep. Yes. Well, updates out of the way. Let's talk about the most important part of this podcast, what you're drinking, Matt. I am drinking the most exciting thing I've probably been drinking, (laughs) uh, aside from my
1: peanut butter whiskey a couple episodes ago. I'm I'm drinking this double IPA from Spiteful Brewing here in Chicago. It's called Working for the Weekend, and it is the most fun can I've ever purchased It's got just this really fun hand-drawn aesthetic on it, and it's got a couple faces of a man who uh, starts off uh, dead inside as he starts working Monday, and he gradually becomes more alive during the week until he gets to Friday, and he's a functioning human being uh, ready for a beer from Spiteful Brewing. So uh, it's good. I'm enjoying it a lot.
0: Uh, What are you drinking this week? Uh, I am drinking a high-water brewing Imperial Campfire Stout which is a stout with graham crackers, molasses, and other natural flavors.
1: Wait, that sounds delicious.
0: Yeah, it's actually really good. I was a little bit, um, I'm kind of a purist when it comes to uh, stouts, but sure. this is this exceeded expectations.
1: I, I The name Campfire Stout sounds really, I don't really like stouts, but Campfire Stout sounds fun.
0: It does, it is very fun.
1: I don't know, something about it.
0: Yeah. Why are you Maximilian Banks this week?
1: Oh! Good question, Cameron. That's because me and you and my girlfriend were playing Call of Cthulhu, a t- tabletop game very similar to D&D, just yesterday afternoon. And the yeah. character I played was a wealthy, very attractive man called Maximilian Banks, set at and He's named after the reporter in BoJack Horseman from one of the last seasons named Maximilian Banks. Um, Cameron said that it's fun to play a character who's unlike you in real life, so I played a wealthy, attractive man who uh, <laughs> uh, got a real job after college so <laughs>
0: um How close are you to starting your hydroponic garden i it It's a matter of weeks. My boss has okay. been talking to me about her homesteading and explaining her website where she gets her tomato seeds, mm. and I've been watching some home hydroponics stuff on my own so we're getting we're getting close but it's All been right, kind of well, put off because of the call of cthulhu thing but that's it's worth it it was worth it to take some time off and then see you basically try to scooby Do a cosmic horror from beyond if you don't try and scooby Do it are you really playing the game that's what i gotta say <laughs> <laughs> okay well <clears throat> let's get into our reading for this week speaking of scooby-doing your way out of situations
1: <laughs> <laughs> um maybe that will be relevant to the story we'll see i got a, a small tad bit of background on Zemyatin's novel we before we get into summary and discussion not too much just because i don't think you need too much to understand this novel i think it is one of the ones that we've read on the podcast that really does stand on its own without knowing too much about the author but it does make it a little bit more interesting uh Zamyatin was born uh before the revolution he was born to the son of a russian orthodox priest which is just fascinating the amount of like writers and politicians who were born to Orthodox priests. Um, But he really wasn't interested in Christianity. He kind of lost interest in that almost immediately. He, He was fascinated with the Bolsheviks. He became a Bolshevik. He was really into the revolution, but he was not quite into all aspects of the revolution. And that's what started to get him into a little bit of trouble. He didn't really like some of the repressive aspects, shall we say, uh, we he wrote in 1921 and actually became the first book to ever be banned in the Soviet Union and so Zamyatin arranged for it to be smuggled out to the west and published which was not not met well people did not enjoy this uh, there was a lot of outrage in the party because of that uh, shortly after he was expelled from the party and he actually received permission to live abroad where he died in Paris in horrible poverty uh, so not that great of a life does not seem like to me. Um, but the book itself uh, influenced a lot of things. It is, I think, the first book of like dystopian fiction, as we understand it today. It really it influenced George Orwell, publishing 1984. He published that in 1949, which was three years after he read and reviewed We. He basically used the same exact plot. Uh, And and so I was saying to Cameron, just before recording this podcast episode, I read an article in The Guardian. Yes, I hate myself for having to read The Guardian. And they were talking about how George Orwell like perfected we. And if it wasn't for Orwell, we wouldn't even know uh, what we was. And I said, what? This is the worst conclusion you could have come to after reading both of these books. Uh, But...
0: No one knows what Wii is anyway. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, yes. Well, they said the article was like, should we care more about the fact that George George Orwell probably plagiarized Wii? And the Guardian was like, nah, it seems fine. <laughs> yeah. About the stance you would expect
0: the Guardian to take. <laughs> and just to before we get into the plot itself, um, every single story beat is basically the same. Towards the end, it's it veers off. The second half of 1984 is pretty different from the second half of Wii, but the setup is The same setup as it is in Fahrenheit 451, it's the same setup as in Brave New World, it's the same setup as in Anthem. (laughs) Yeah. Man lives his life in dystopian future, younger hot woman comes along and breaks him out of his reverie, and even though she's far more interesting, we focus on his story. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yeah. So let's talk about Wii. Now, the story of Wii is told in a lot of very short stories essentially it's written as if it's the journal of the main character d503 and so it chronicles just about every day he has in his life and because of that there's a lot of really short chapters and although they themselves are really interesting to talk about they're not necessarily interesting from a plot summary perspective so i'll be kind of doing a very general version of the plot up until record 20. it's for the best i tried to do them (laughs) individually and it is really difficult to follow (laughs) Yeah, it is. I mean, there's several chapters which may or may not be dreams, which I will mention, but will not be going in depth about what he may or may not have been dreaming about. Oh
1: my! I when I was reading this back, I was like, "Am I okay?" Like <laughs> I, the first time I read this, I do not remember having this reaction to the book. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. There are parts where like it makes sense for something to have actually happened, and then he also kind of leads with, "Well, it might have been a dream." This injury I got, which I thought was from X, another person told me that I got it while working on shift. So. Mm-hmm. Who yeah. knows? There's a few of those. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and unlike 1984, that's not because of the thought police. It's just because D-503 is having a very big existential crisis.
1: Yes, yes, yes.
0: So we open up with our main character, D-503, who lives in the glorious future world governed by the one state. In this society, basically all of humanity is dead except for this, uh, at least as it's implied by this person, although, of course, he's subject to the propaganda of his society. Basically, this conclave, this state governed by the one state, is all that's left of humanity. The world in which they live is surrounded by a giant clear wall through which they can see a forest, basically. And they look upon that as a sign of the savagery outside of their little rational paradise. So we follow D-503's story as he begins to tell us about what it's like to live in this world because he's the head designer on a ship called the Integral. And basically what the Integral's purpose is, is to go to other worlds, find other civilizations, and then subjugate them to reason and rationality and stamp out any forms of freedom which lead necessarily to criminality. Part of the Integral's flight, at least, is to bring the art of the One State to them, so everyone is encouraged to write art to be put onto this massive ship. D503's contribution, besides being one of the main designers of The Integral, is to write about his daily life. To show these unenlightened races out in the cosmos why you should embrace a more rational life. And you see parts of his life, he has sort of um, a lover slash... Well, in this world, relationships have kind of been abolished. So you're kind of free to do whatever you want in the one hour of free time you have every day. As long as you register it. As long as you register it, yes. That's all you gotta do. Yeah.
1: A little bit of paperwork and then... uh... You know? Winky
0: face. <laughs> <laughs> his sort of paramour, O90, uh, chooses to really mostly register with him and then another person, R13, who is a mutual friend of theirs. Um, and so he and O90 are having their mutually registered time together in the afternoon when D-503 happens to bump into this woman, I-330. And I-330 kind of compliments his hands, which D-503 is very self-conscious about because they're very hairy and remind him that he's a biological organism and not a machine, like he would like to be. Not literally, but figuratively. Um, and he kind of describes her as kind of strange and he tries to put her out of his mind, but she's kind of sticking around in there. And as you go forward, he tries to forget about her. It's just a minor encounter. He keeps going on with O90 and he begins to tell you more about their society and how they live according to a very strict regiment. A- and he says, each morning with a six-wheeled precision at the exact same hour, at the exact same minute, we... The millions rise as one. At the exact same hour, we unimillionly start work and unimillionly stop work. And he begins to wonder how this could have ever been organized otherwise. And he makes reference to like the great prophets of the old era, Taylor and Ford. And basically that's a reference to in the early Soviet Union, a lot of industrialization happened on the backs of American uh, American industrialists like Henry Ford and Taylor. So somewhat ironically among the proletariat masses some of the most famous names were um america's arch capitalists <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you continue on with d 503s story he begins to attend pseudo-religious ceremonies which are sort of education in this world he thinks that's ridiculous that once upon a time they were worshipped a you know a silly unknowable god in the sky whereas now they worship technology all kinds of new inventions are shown off a machine which can create sonnets uh, which they joke, our ancestors would have had to struggle to write sonnets, whereas with this baby, you can crank out three or four an hour. I-330 appears on stage to play a piano, and everyone ridicules her, thinking that's funny. But D-503 has this kind of moment where he's not really certain what he should be feeling about it. As as they look upon this rudimentary thing, such as a piano. Or at least what is implied to be a piano. D-503 kind of goes on about his life until he runs into I-330 again, who invites him to the Ancient House, which is essentially a museum. While there, alone, she changes into an old dress, and she kind of tries to get him to stay, past the time that he's allowed to be there, per his registered hour. And he kind of storms off, saying that he's going to report her to the Bureau of Guardians to tell them that she was breaking the rules. However, despite fully intending to, he doesn't quite get around to it. The next day, he decides that he feels kind of sick, so he goes to the Bureau of Medicine instead to get treatment for that, and he ends up missing the 48-hour window which you have in order to tell anything to the Bureau of Guardians. And he kind of puts that in the back of his head. Like, that doesn't really matter. That was one mistake. It's fine. He goes on about his life. He spends more time with O90 and his friend, R13, who is a poet, and they kind of have some back and forth, and you kind of get the sense that maybe R13 has a slightly different perspective, but is willing to humor D503, especially when D503 insults old artists and poets and you know wonders how they could have ever done anything with complete freedom rather than using their poetry for what is good social good the will of the state the absolute fools (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) and r13 kind of agrees with him but he also kind of makes fun of d503 when he tells him yes dear mathematician happily 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 we are the happiest arithmetical mean what is it you people say to integrate from zero to infinity from Creton to shakespeare that's it So this is basically D-503's life. Now the major change comes the next day, when D-503 attends a a ceremony with massive structures, representations of the benefactor who's kind of the leader of this one-state society, and it's one pseudo-religious ceremony to celebrate the execution of a poet who had been writing on one-state poems, uh, essentially, as he put it, advocating for the liberation of humanity from the one-state's helpful grip. You know, after seeing that, he's pretty riled up, he's pretty happy about it. i three three zero once again invites him to the ancient house. Dale there she kind of makes fun of him a little bit, kind of telling him, you know, you should have turned me in and now by not turning me in, you're actually an accomplice with me, so you kind of are stuck with me now. And she shows off that newfound freedom by sitting down wearing a a new dress or excuse me, by wearing an old dress while they're alone in this house, smoking, drinking some kind of liqueur or maybe absinthe, which are all things that are banned in this society and he kind of wants to immediately rush out and turn her in but she comes over offers him a drink and then kisses him and then something kind of breaks in him and he kind of begins to see himself a little bit differently and he kind of has this moment where he like freaks out and just like normally in order to have any sort of sexual intercourse you have to register get a pink slip but he just just like decides to start kissing her which is totally against the rules and then she kind of humors him. He kind of gets down on his, knees, on his knees and starts, like, kissing her knees, which is weird, but, you know, they live in a, a repressed society. Take what you can get. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she kind of shows him that it's almost time for curfew, and then he, in that moment, snaps back to his old self and decides that he can't keep breaking the rules and stay out after curfew and goes home. He begins to see himself slightly differently after this encounter. He feels like there are two versions of him, and he's not really certain who the true version is. His friend r comes over and shares with him a new poem which is basically about uh, adam and eve and how they were wrong to choose freedom over security rather than security over freedom as they have very intelligently done which is an entirely rational decision in this moment d503 feels the rightness of his old self again he says you know our gods are down here below with us in the bureau in the kitchen in the workshop in the latrine and in this way we ourselves are gods now that only lasts about as long as until the next time he sees I-330, uh, at which point she kind of asks to see him again, and they once again go to the ancient house. And then at this point, D begins to like realize that I think this new self is my true self. And this is something that's so overwhelmingly true about him that even the next time O-90 sees him, she almost immediately knows that something's wrong and is like, you're no longer my D-503, and kind of runs off. Uh, after that, D-503 really doesn't see much of I-330. He can't get in contact with her, and even when he like, drops by her apartment, she's not there, and uh, a friend of hers kind of redirects him to the Bureau of Medicine. While there, a kind of lanky doctor diagnoses him with having a soul. And while he is pondering this, the doctor cheekily prescribes him the medicine of taking long walks, maybe especially to the ancient house.
1: Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> yeah,
0: Exactly. And he keeps spending the next couple of days just looking for I-330 and eventually decides that she must be at the ancient house and he goes there and he tries storms into the room where they always meet and he's all alone. Except a guardian shows up in the house down below and he realizes that he needs to hide. So he gets into a closet and then ends up falling into a crawl space and as he keeps going he eventually ends up in the Bureau of Medicine. And he once again finds that lanky doctor and with him is I-330 who... Kind of quickly takes him outside and, you know, tidies him up and says, you know, wait for me. And in the ensuing days, nothing happens until finally D-503 gets a pink slip, which is a sign that it's sex night, which is actually what it's called in the book. From I-330, when that night comes, a young man shows up and gives D-503 a letter. In that letter, it's basically I-330 asking him to pretend like she's there, close the blinds, act as if I am here, which he feels pretty betrayed about and is deciding what to do about this when O ninety 90 shows up again and kind of tells him, you know, I'm going to get out of your life forever. I know that you don't love me anymore. That's fine. I just, you know, I want to feel something real. So get me pregnant, basically. Also, there was an, there was an earlier presentation about childhood and children, which probably was what drew some of this, because uh, D503 is having the exact same thoughts, and he sees O ninety 90 at that presentation. And in that moment, she sees the pink ticket from I-330 and then metaphorically, D-503 describes himself as being thrown off a balcony. And that's where we end part one of We. Yep. It's a doozy. It is. It is a doozy. There's a lot going on here.
1: I just like a lot between not only the story, but also the journal entry sequence where it very frequently breaks from the narration to give you like backstory on the, like the world building. Um Yeah. And to kind of like pat itself on the back for doing the world building as well, which I, I felt way more this time than when I read it the first time, which to be fair, was freshman year of my undergraduate when I was like, oh, it's actually pretty cool. And and it is pretty cool, but it's also like, <laughs> I think I felt a lot more of the satire this time reading it.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I took it less seriously, I guess. Because there's that kind of uh, veneer of everything he's putting forward. He puts it forward in a way as if this is a good thing, but anyone with like half a sense of critical thinking can tell that this is obviously completely ridiculous and that's not because the author believes something is ridiculous, but because he's trying to skate that line and, and show something and kind of just bring it up to the edge of being apparently absurd. If you can see what he's going for, you can read into a lot of what he means.
1: Yeah, I think I, th- I, mean, I think it's important to keep the context of Zemyatin was writing in... Like in the context of the Soviet Union, he was writing in terms of what he saw as the bad strains of communism, if you were to take them to their extremes, I think that's what he was going to kind of represent. There was no way at the time that he was writing this, that he knew that it would be, that it would turn out the way it did. (laughs) And the the fact that there were, you know, uh, some aspects, I guess, of it, that's some feelings perhaps that
0: are evoked throughout it, that he got right there. You know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, certainly at this time, of course, we have the new the new formation of the USSR. It's in its absolute infancy, still in the cradle. The Civil War is barely won yet. Not even really that one.
1: It's definitely not. It's like super, super
0: early to be writing this. Yeah. And in this context, the Soviet Union is now a basically backwards, largely agricultural power in a world which it perceives as hating it. Not incorrectly no
1: no definitely not
0: <laughs> yeah and you see very early on and this is a speech i think stalin gave in the 30s that basically we have 10 years to catch up with everyone else or they will bury us and that later uh, industrialization under stalin was really taking effect at this time because even before him uh, announcing to everyone that we need to industrialize as quick as possible uh, a lot many soviet leaders were like we need to industrialize so we have a lot of people who are looking to create an economy which is based on factories and based on exact measurements and based on less emotions and more meters uh, which is kind of what Zamyatin is satirizing here. Mhm. There was there was one point that I really liked that was stuck out to me a lot this time when I was reading it
1: because it's something that I've been working on in my own research and it's at the, the very end of the section that we read on record 20 or chapter 20. I I'll read the quote because I I found it interesting and my translation It's talking about rules of arithmetic and how they kind of derive ethics and morals from that. And and basically he says there are four rules of arithmetic that are unalterable and everlasting, and only that moral system built on the four rules will prevail as great, unalterable, and everlasting. That is the ultimate wisdom. And he goes on to say that looking down from the summit of this unalterable system, we can see that there's no difference between a woman who gave birth illegally, O, and a murderer. And the verdict is the same for all of them, a premature death. Cameron mentioned at the end of his summary, O90 wanted to have a child, but she didn't want to do it in the prescribed manner, which would have been highly illegal. I don't know what the punishment would have been. It's not dictated here exactly in the book, but it's assumed that it's not good. And so this idea that there can be just such strict and severe punishments for things that are very um, different, (laughs) I guess, uh, because they go back to like these couple simple core rules, uh, which I guess might kind of make sense in general, but when you get to applying them to different situations, you start to see that, oh, these are actually really different (laughs) and might require different rules to be applied to them.
0: Yeah. Well, see, this is a situation where it's kind of interesting. This is one of the places where you can kind of see the through line from this book to 1984. Because, of course, one of the major uh, tenets of the society in which Pan Pan-Oce- Oceania or whatever it's called is uh, freedom is slavery, and that's something that in the book is very much one of like the four main ones. And it's kind of portrayed as these are inherently contradictory terms, and we teach them to you because we're trying to show you that. You know, reality is not what it seems, and our control over you is that complete that I can tell you that I can fly, and I actually fly. An interesting idea for eighth graders. Uh, however, that same concept exists in we, but with a bit more of a logical backing, which makes sense considering his more STEM background and Orwell's purely writ writing background. I think he was a journalist. In that, the same idea that freedom is kind of slavery is brought up. However, in this version the phrase is a bit more freedom is criminality and they kind of take it back to the book of genesis with the idea of adam and eve and this is something that r13 brings up in r13 r13's poem he kind of puts forth this moral dilemma to d503 think about that these two in paradise stood before a choice happiness without freedom or freedom without happiness a third choice wasn't given and this is of course referring to adam and eve's choice to eat from the tree of good and evil as Encouraged by Satan they the blockheads they chose freedom and then what? Understandably for centuries they longed for fetters for fetters You understand that was the cause of world sorrow for centuries until we figured out how to return to happiness again No, wait wait listen we and the ancient God are side by side at the same table Yes, we have helped God to conquer the devil death definitively It was this devil, you know who urged people to violate what was forbidden and take a bite of that fatal freedom He was the malicious snake but our boot on his head, crunch. And there, paradise is restored. Again, we are simple-hearted innocents like Adam and Eve. No more confusion about good and evil. Everything is very simple. Heavenly, childishly simple. So, essentially, the argument here is not so much that, you know, society can simply propaganda to you, but rather that people desire security and, and safety, or at least the perception of that so much, that they're willing to take on fetters for that, which I think is a much more is an idea that you tend to see much more in society than orwell's idea of of propagandization being so complete although maybe antonio gramsci would disagree with me on that front
1: it's like i I think it's one of those where like you can see that these books were written 30 years apart I i think one of them requires much more foresight and it's it's this novel to come up with what a situation in the future looks like I, I don't know. I, I, was very, I was very struck by
0: it the first time I read it. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that essentially with Zemyatin this is both like a critique but also an interesting idea that he points out that this state of unfreedom feels good because it's childishly simple. It's like being mm-hmm. a child again when your parents are your bumpers or parents or parent are your bumpers to keep you from falling off the edge. And that's kind of what they have thought of as a society where the benefactor is the bumpers to keep you on the straight and narrow Criminality is impossible because freedom is impossible. You've got no freedom to choose criminality. We instead have given you your choices, and you will, if you throw yourself into it, be pretty happy with that. Just go to work at this time. Go mm-hmm. to your physical labor at this time. Sign up for sex days when you want to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you just... You just you don't have to this is one of the strange features you don't have to mutually sign up for it. you can just sign up for someone and that person gets a notification uh that you're you've signed up for sex day with them which doesn't seem like a system that could ever be uh misused or <laughs> exploited but apparently this
1: it doesn't go into a lot of detail and that made me laugh on the I, I thought the same exact thing i mean it's like
0: did anyone have to like give a second signature on this <laughs> <laughs> no there's points at which he's basically like D 503 is basically served as summons and that summons is like anyway. I 303 is sign up for sex with you tonight oh,
1: No, 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 no! I think that like okay. I think that is Okay, it's true that it, that did happen, but I think that's kind of the point I think it's like a little mysterious that she's able to Not only uh, sex day might be a little different But there's a lot of situations throughout the novel where she's able to insert himself in his life That it's like odd like there should have been some sort of chance factor involved and he kind of thinks hey what are the chances i calculated them and they're actually pretty
0: rare that this would happen i don't know how much there is to go on about with sex day because that's not a huge part of the novel but i do want to point out one of my favorite parts there are a lot of really good lines in this novel but very early on 090 kind of invites d503 over and she's kind of like hey you want to pull down the blinds tonight which is in this society you have to register to pull down your blinds as well um, and you only do that if you were getting a pink slip. And he kind of chides her and says, don't you know we aren't signed up for sex for another two days?
1: <laughs> 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 the absolute <laughs> fool! Uh,
0: that would just make me laugh. <clears throat> Almost as much as the line uh, when they're describing their new invention, which can create sonnets. Uh, the announcer says, what a struggle this was for our ancestors. They could create only if they drove themselves to fits of inspiration, which is a strange form of epilepsy. Uh, <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> which I feel, I get that. <clears throat> mm-hmm. But when i want to return to the, um, br- very, very briefly to the idea of un- freedom being tied to criminality or unfreedom being tied to childishness. And I would say that you could apply that to the Soviet Union or you might even extend this critique to, not as Zamyatin ever would have intended it to, but today where we are, I'm not going to say that our, our modern life of applications taking care of everything for us has infantilized us, but I yeah. will say that we are willing to choose convenience and sell our data and I'm oh, including yeah. myself in that number, totally. If it you know means we get to save a little bit of time because there's so much going on in our lives. All so. right, Cameron, will you tell me what am I supposed to do? Read the terms of conditions?
1: I don't think so. <laughs> I do no. not think I will. How
0: about no, that? No, I I won't either. Yeah, we'll no. just no, no, no. And hand in hand, we'll walk into our e l e l u a dystopia. Yeah,
1: uh, there was um something that I really hated when I was doing a, a quick research on 1984 before the podcast. Uh, And that was one of the chapters in 1984. It was called 2 plus 2 equals 5. And all of the entries were like about different literatures. And there was kind of almost like a small footnote about Russian literature. And I was like, okay, I guess other people have talked about this. But it's a pretty distinct feature in almost every single major work of Russian literature. I mean, everybody's talking about what 2 plus (laughs) 2 equals. Like, you would think that it was a real question you know <laughs> it's crazy like <laughs> we talked about it in notes from the underground i don't know if that's yep. where it first showed up but that was definitely one of the ones that popularized the question we talked about it in fathers and children a couple of weeks ago and there's a quote in it here and it is that truth is one and the true path is one and that truth is two times two and the true path is four and um There's like a poem about how 2 times 2 equals 4, and it's just like a whole thing. And it's so much.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but this one, I think the 2 plus 2 equals 5 is whatever. It's supposed to say that reality is whatever we make it to be. In this version, in we, it's actually a reflection of the view of this society. Yes. Which is that everything should be grounded in logic. And 2 plus 2 equals 4 is kind of a divine statement because it's a reflection of the fact that everything... Everything is something that we can calculate if we have the mathematics Mm -hmm. to do so. Mm -hmm. They talk about subjugating the world. They have no natural life. D503 hates the look of hair on his hands. He thinks it's a sign of his bestial ancestors. He hates the look of the forest. He thinks it's totally weird and unnatural and strange that they haven't subjugated that yet. It's a a genuine reflection of this, this worldview where the natural world is nothing in the face of humanity's ability to make sense of it at least as humanity might understand it which is an attitude which would certainly go on to be held very um very deeply and at the expense of a lot of ecological uh mm-hmm. sites in russia and in the surrounding republics
1: i guess you know i guess like it's it's kind of hard to put into words without reading it and i would so recommend that you read it because it's actually like this is such a fun and also quick read uh, I, I don't know about you cameron but i read it like i've read it before but i've Reread it fairly quickly and it's just what is the effect of a totalizing ideology where you have a couple core tenets i guess and you apply them to everything and that's kind of what this society and yeah sure is it a reductive approach to communism yes <laughs> but is it it's I, I think it's more than that i just think it's very satirical i think there's a lot of fun that Zemyatin is having here while he's writing it I definitely, I definitely Had a lot of fun reading mm-hmm. it I think Like you said earlier it just borders On this kind of absurd Idea it's not something you're supposed to look at And be like oh you know communism Could never work because they would uh, tell us When to have sex that's like not the point of the book At all
0: keep in mind that Zamyatin was kind Of a true believer but just not in Sort of industrial communism as many Bolsheviks of the era wanted
1: it, That and like he wasn't uh, I think Probably uh, in favor of the Secret police which I guess probably I would venture to say most people are not a fan of.
0: Yeah, yep, yeah, that's probably a safe statement.
1: He has this really interesting thing, actually, that I noticed that I'm totally going to talk about because I co-host a podcast and I have a platform now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's something I've been reading a little bit more about, and people who study this professionally will probably scold me for talking about it because I'm going to make no sense as I discuss it here. But Zemyatin does this this thing that was really common with the Futurist School of Literature and Art, which was uh, really popular. and Well, it was taking place in Russia about this time. Levels of popularity debated. Uh, (laughs) People in this book, if you notice, they take attributes that have to do with their names and their letters. Like, everybody is assigned a letter and a number. And I think now when we look back, we're like, oh, that's just because they're like cogs in a machine. If you think about it, it's kind of like that. Uh, I don't think that's quite what Zumiatin is doing here. A little bit, but not quite. Uh, I think that the characters actually derive their characteristics from their letter. Like, oh, if you notice, she's described as something like very natural and round, and those are positive shapes. She's described almost always in the shape of her, her mouth, which is an O, a pink O. I-330, she's always described in shapes of like triangles, and she's very sharp, and she there's something about her that's just not right um and then the guardian that she is sometimes associated with is in the shape of an s which is like he's very slippery there's something also not right about him but you know in a sinister kind of way um and there's something about the letter s which like has it's very snake-like i think Mm. um and and some of the futurists like klemnikov were very interested in this idea of like The letter as such and the word as such and they're kind of looking at very broadly and theoretically like is there (laughs) like i I don't know how to describe it exactly but like can we create a universal language based on what (laughs) i can't fucking describe it (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, I mean, Bertrand Russell tried to do that and he failed spectacularly, so uh, better minds than us have tried.
1: Klebnikov also failed spectacularly, but in a very interesting <laughs> way. But I think Semyatin is kind of like playing with that idea here, basically. Mm. It's just right. like, do letters have some ingrained value to them, or some ingrained like notions about them? And they, they do in the story. I mean, he gives them to you, so they do for the narrator. Whether they do for the reader, that's kind of up to the reader yeah so that's my thing i wanted to talk about
0: (laughs) (laughs) so now we're kind of around page 100 at this point d 503 is definitely anguished he's not really certain about what he's going to do although he kind of goes back and forth between believing yes i am the new d or i am the old d and at the same time his thinking is kind of evolving as as his relationships change as he kind of Follows away from 090 as he kind of decides he doesn't want to talk to R13 anymore. He, at one point, is walking along the edge of the green wall and looks into the forest and sees a pair of yellow eyes stare out at him. And he thinks for a moment, could this irrational creature be happier than me? Before he scuttles the thought and says, no, of course not. I, I know math. I'm obviously happier than this creature.
1: As anybody who's taken a math class can attest to, <laughs> you're so much happier in math class.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh. That's, that's been oh, our, yeah. our best achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, And it's interesting that he, at this point, is really trending towards embracing I330's view of the world using kind of the same logic with which he embraced the old system. Mm-hmm. Because he, at the very end of the day, the only thing he can really keep believing in is math. And he says this. To every equation, to every formula in the surface world, there is a corresponding curve or mass. We don't know the corresponding masses to irrational formulas. To my square root of negative one. We haven't ever seen them. But the very horror of it all is that these masses, invisible masses, do exist. They necessarily, inevitably, must exist because mathematics is like a street on which the whimsical, prickly shadows of irrational formulas cross before us. Mathematics and death. Neither makes mistakes. And if these masses are not evident in our world, on the surface, then it's inescapable. They must have their own entire enormous world there, behind the surface. And if you didn't quite catch it at all, that's okay, Zemyatin himself was very well vers- versed in mathematics. A lot of this book is based on D-503's mathematical thinking, but basically, he's yep. taking that same sort of total mathematical thought, which previously led him to the belief that, of course, we must approach the world logically, and therefore we cannot have any sort of mercy for criminals, no matter how small the crime is, because then that will- society will break down, there will no longer be protectives for us all. Now it's beginning to shift, and he's beginning to think about it in a slightly different way. This square root of negative one, the irrational number which had previously terrified him because it wasn't something that was nice and easy to fit into a box mathematically, is now a representation of an invisible world which must exist, but it's not on the surface. And he uses mathematics to kind of come around to that way of thinking, that there are mathematical formulas which are beneath the surface that aren't usually addressed.
1: It makes me think of every time I'm on Twitter and (laughs) I see, like, anybody talk, yeah. Uh, which is always a horrible experience. Yes, and they they come to some conclusions, and they're like, "Well, logically, if you think about it, you have to come to this conclusion." And I'm like, "No, you absolutely do not have to do that." Um, on either side of the aisle, people do this, which is really frustrating. And I think it's kind of addressed in this book. That's why I I don't think you could say it's explicitly anti-communist. It's anti-totalist, perhaps. It doesn't believe in uh, philosophies of totality in that in that sense. And uh, there's always like. Something more to every specific situation that needs to be uncovered, which D503 is going through that experience with I-330.
0: And it's it's fun to go along with them for the ride, I think. Yeah, it's definitely a pretty engaging read i had a bit of a different experience from you because i i'm not good at math and uh the gre definitely proved that last year um <laughs> 46 percentile gang yes um, sir and a lot of the way that Defoe with her approaches the world is explaining it through mathematics which is not you don't need like a degree in it to understand but i definitely needed to go back and, and reread a fair bit to completely follow the logic of his arguments because that is what he's putting forth until he begins to have that change where he doesn't <laughs> have a completely logical argument from, you know, point A to point X, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. But that's where we leave off for now. Uh, I-330 is involved in some shady things, but it's kind of MIA. Uh, O90 wants a child. Uh, D503 is now using math to argue against totalitarianism. And uh, R13 is writing about the Bible-ish stuff. Stuff. Okay, well, so before we totally wrap up, Matt, on a scale of one to Yeltsin, how drunk are you? So there's this
1: point in Wii where when they're doing test runs of the integral ship, there are some engineers underneath who are like lying there dozing off, and they get they get absolutely zapped when it takes off. I am unfortunately one of those ten. That's um <laughs> <laughs> that's where I'm at right now, um, accidentally, of course. But
0: you know that's yeah. where we're at. How about you? Fair. Um, there's an earlier scene, you stole my my joke, there's an earlier scene where (laughs) when I330 and D503 are in the ancient house together, and she pulls out some, what I presume is absinthe and smoking a cigarette, she begins to drink. I think I'm probably at the level that she was at, which is to say that I have drunk alcohol, but I'm not really that far in. I I can't imagine you can drink like one glass of absinthe and be really there, but uh, definitely a strong three to four.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: All right. (laughs) nice Uh, so what are we reading
1: next week next week we're going to be finishing We by Yukini Zamyatin this week we read records 1 through 20 next week we're going to be reading records 21 through 40 I believe is the last one Yes. Uh, before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. We've got Jeff, Janice, and Madeline, Gary, Alex, and Roland. Podcasting is unfortunately not free, and grad school, even more unfortunately, does not pay well. So if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com tipsytolstoy.
0: The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at tipsytolstoypodcast or join our email list on our website tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon.